same we pray. Amen. Amen. So leading up to Valentine's Day, thinking of the subject of love, I had on my mind today uh, love and truth. And I couldn't help but think of John's message in 2 John. And so find the message, I mean, find the book of 2 John in your Bibles back toward the end of your uh, New Testament. And uh, I want us to read uh, what John says about both love and truth and how it's not an either-or scenario, but rather both and. Okay? Second John. Second John, and of course, it's only the one chapter. Okay? Got it? The elder to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth. And not I only, but also to all who know the truth. Because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has been... It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children, the children of your sister who is chosen by God, send their greetings. A very brief book, isn't it? Very brief, very short. The longest sermon ever preached, I shared this with you back a few years ago. The longest sermon ever preached was done in 2014 by a 31-year-old pastor in the state of Florida. Zach Zender at the Cross Church in Mount Dora, Florida. The sermon was 53 hours and 18 minutes long. He wanted to preach the storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, so he began with 50 of the, the biggest stories and characters in the Bible that span all 66 books of the Scripture, and he went from there. He says he worked on the sermon for six months. It was also a fundraising type sermon and actually over $100,000 came in. 
Now, during the sermon, of course, he was allowed to, to take some breaks and some nourishment. Now, believe it or not, there were some in the congregation who were present for the entire sermon. And it went from Friday morning early until Sunday afternoon. Others stayed, they caught 20 hours of it or 40 hours, while others rotated in and out between two and four hour segments. Now, the closer they got to Sunday, the more packed the church became with each passing hour. As I say, he began on Friday, uh, November 7, 2014, and at 12.18 Sunday afternoon, he finished. He said he went home and collapsed for seven hours. He woke up, he got something to eat, he watched a Sunday night football game, talked to his kids some, went back to bed immediately, slept all night, woke up Monday morning, and he really didn't even remember talking to his kids the night before. <laughs> Long sermon, right? So you'll feel better after hearing me on Sunday. Right? You might want to break his record off. Hey, I might someday. <laughs> you know, on the other hand, we know that some messages are very brief. We just studied Jonah. Now, in the book of Jonah, Jonah's message, now we can assume that it was probably longer, but in the scripture, in the in the text, how many words was Jonah's sermon? Do you remember? We talked about this. Eight words. In the Hebrew text, only five words. Some messages very brief. Your spouse sends you a text or a note or a card at a special occasion. I love you. Happy Valentine's Day. Your kids are headed home from college over the holidays, and maybe they text, almost there. Powerful messages that are very, very brief. Well, uh, that's how Second John is. Now, you know, we're in a we're in a world now of, you know, the the tweets and the texts and all the little abbreviations, right? Uh, Ran across some abbreviations fairly recently uh, about <coughs> seniors. You know, the BYOB type, uh, BFF, and all that kind of stuff. Well, here's one. Here's what they said uh, BFF, best friend forever, is best friend fail. <laughs> BTW, by the way, is bring the wheelchair. <laughs> BYOT is bring your own tea. <laughs> OMSG is oh, oh my sorry guess. TTLY is talk to you, talk to you louder. OMMR is on my massage recliner. <laughs> well, when we come to Second John, obviously uh, it falls in the category of a very short message. In fact, one writer, one commentator, referred to it uh, more like a postcard than a letter. Second and third John are the shortest letters in the New Testament, even shorter than Philemon or Jude. In the Greek text, uh, it's less than 300 words. But again, short does not mean lacking 
in power. John has some powerful words to say to this congregation. Now, when you look at it, it says the elder to the lady chosen by God and to her children. Some believe that John is writing to a well-known woman who possibly hosted a church in her home. As we know, in the first century, many of the churches were house churches. Uh, others believe, particularly of Catholic persuasion, that John is writing to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Still others believe he's writing to a specific local church. Now, this is probably the interpretation that, that makes the most sense. It's the one that certainly I would uh, agree with. And in this brief correspondence, John gives both encouragement and warning. You know, the climate that the church lives in back then, very challenging, uh, just like today. And John's writing to those who are facing false teachers who want to undermine the gospel. And so John writes to believers that they'd press on, that they would keep a close eye on their doctrine, and that they would also keep a close eye on their own lives. It, it's a great reminder to us of how we're to live. Now, what I want us to look at is three relationships that John talks about here. First of all, we see John's, uh, I mean, a believer's relationship to truth. Look at verse 4 and verse 9. John says, It's given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. Over in verse 9, he says, Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So John's overjoyed that there are some in the fellowship who are walking in the truth. Now, notice how he says, It's given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth. The, the, the particular word in the Greek has the partitive nature to it. Now, that's, that just simply means what it sounds like. If you say partitive, some. Some of your children are walking in the truth. What's that implying? Not all are. Not all are. Uh, it may mean that John knows some who have turned away. John's very disappointed. Uh, or it could simply mean that, that John is saying, you know, some of you I know, I can testify about, and others I just don't know well enough. You could, you could interpret it either way. But again, only some uh, are walking in the truth. Now folks, I want you to think about that, how sad that is. And you think in terms of today. You know, if you get into discussions today with people, especially over difficult subject matters, it's not uncommon at all to hear some Christians say, we don't need to worry about any of that. We just need to concentrate on love. We just need to concentrate on love. Don't worry about these difficult situations. Just concentrate on love. Well, is there truth in that? Absolutely. We do need to 
love better, right? Church needs to do a better job of loving one another. So do we need to love more? Yeah. Do we just need to love? No. No. Now John's going to get to love in a moment. We'll cover that. But folks, we dare not miss the fact that the Bible also calls upon us to walk in the truth. God is a God of truth. And so it's not an either or scenario, truth or love. We are to be tenacious about both. And so before dealing with love, John deals with truth. Now, I want to remind you of something. I want to remind you that most of the letters of the New Testament, they, folks, they weren't written in a vacuum. They were written to address specific problems or situations that were going on. And oftentimes, whether it was John or the Apostle Paul or Simon Peter, in their letters, they were trying to issue some corrective measures to what was going on. We need to understand that as we study the Bible. Whatever passage we're looking at, whatever book we're reading from, there's a context and a background to it. Back at the beginning of the 20th century, you, you see it, you saw it back then more in German circles. There was a German word that, that German scholars, commentators use, sits in Laban, which literally means the setting in life. The original setting. If you read a more technical commentary, sometimes you will run across this phrase, the sits in Laban. The original life setting. And it's no different when you read 2 John. There's an original life setting. There's a subject matter that John's addressing. There's a challenge to the church that John is dealing with. He's dealing with false teachers. You know, Jesus himself warned that, that the disciples would face false teachers, counterfeits, who would be on the rise and try to lead believers astray. And John's addressing some of this. Which again shows us that doctrine matters. Truth matters. You know, everybody in a sense is a theologian. Do you realize that? Now, not everybody is a good theologian. Not everybody is a biblical theologian. But everybody is a theologian. I th you know, when we talk about this subject matter, and, and walking in truth and what John's fighting here and how some have turned away. I think you could use a number of Jesus' parables and a number of other passages too to suggest that in the church there's, there's a portion of those who identify with Christ, who profess Christ, and literally, though, they're not genuine believers. And Scripture's pretty direct in warning us about that. And Scripture's not just throwing out a bomb, you know, to scare us. But Scripture points out you're not a believer just because you say you are a believer. You're not even a believer just because maybe you identify with the church. If you're a believer, there's a change in your life. You're a new creation in Christ. 
There's evidence in your life that you belong to Christ. There's fruit. Now, as you grow in Christ, that fruit hopefully increases as you mature. But the Bible is very clear that if we say that we're a Christian, then our lives need to show a difference from the way we were before. Our lives need to show a difference than the world that we see around us. Truth matters. Even for genuine believers sometimes, there's a struggle to walk in the truth, and yet the Bible says God is a God of truth. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus said, Father, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus called God's word the truth. And in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Now what makes John's words all the more powerful, as we'll cover in a moment, is, is that they were holding up the truth. Those who were walking in the truth were holding up the truth in spite of the heresy that they were fighting. I want you to think of the church today and all we're up against in society. Everything that's going on in society. You know, Paul says in Romans 1, when the gospel is believed, when God's truth is embraced, it results in salvation to the Jew and to the Gentile. In Romans 1, 14 through 17, Paul's talking about this. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and to the Gentile. Then in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, Paul flips the coin over to talk about those who reject God's truth. They suppress God's truth. They turn away from it. He talks about the results. Instead of enjoying God's glorious salvation, Paul says three times, God gives you over. God gives you over. God gives you over to lies. He gives you over to degrading passions. He gives you over to a depraved mind. And then he says... You see the fruit of that. He talks about violence. He talks about haters of God. He talks about slanderers and rebellion against authority. Rebellion against parents. He talks about same-sex relationships. He talks about murder, malice, and just ruthlessness in general. And it's not just those who practice these things, but he includes in it those who endorse these things and approve of these things. And he says the problem is they've turned away from the truth. They've suppressed God's truth and they do so because they do not know God. And so the practicing of these things that we see going on in society today is the actual evidence that God's truth has been abandoned. And Paul says there that God's wrath, points out God's wrath is not just eschatological, not just future, but it's even now. And he says when you see all these things taking place in society, you, you can know that God has already abandoned people to go their own way 
And he's bringing judgment, his wrath, on that society or on those people. And so sometimes people will say, Pastor, do you believe that God will judge America? Well, according to Romans chapter 1, God is already judging America. It's already happening. And we know that, according to Romans 1, by the things that we see going on in society and the things people are striving after and endorsing and approving. The point is, there is seriousness of rejecting God's truth. There's seriousness of not walking in God's truth. It matters. There's dire consequences of not walking in God's truth. And you won't hear that in a lot of places. But again, folks, it's not a small matter to reject God's truth. It's no wonder that the Apostle John, thinking about the congregation that he's writing to, he rejoices that what he sees in many of their lives is he sees that they are walking in the truth. And they're bearing the marks of authentic worship of God and authentic Christian lives. It's like Paul said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19-20, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and our joy. It is a joy to see God's people walking in the truth and practicing the truth. It's a joy to see that. You know, I mentioned John's context a moment ago, false teachers, probably Gnostics. They were circling around to the churches and they were undermining the gospel. Now, who in the world were the Gnostics? A very simplified answer is that the Gnostics denied that Jesus came in the flesh. Some, one branch of the Gnostics said that Jesus just appeared to be a man. That in reality, he wasn't. He was a spirit or a ghost. He just appeared to be flesh. And you know, in 1 John chapter 1, right at the beginning, he says, no, 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 no. We've, we've touched him. We've handled him. We've, you know, we've heard him talk. We've been with him. He was real. Another branch of the Gnostics said that the Christ, the Messiah, came upon the man Jesus at his baptism and then when Jesus was dying on the cross, the Messiah, the Christ, lifted off of him so that who died on the cross was just a normal man. And so the Gnostics denied that Jesus was the God-man, that he literally came in the flesh. Now, that kind of doctrine has huge negative consequences for the doctrine of the atonement, right? Huge consequences. The Gnostics essentially denied biblical doctrine of the atonement. 
that God sent his son to bear God's wrath against sin and to die in our place. And in 1 John, John calls them of the spirit of Antichrist. And he reminds them that already there are many antichrists in the world. Yes, there may be one. There, there's, a, there's a final antichrist who's coming one day. But John says already there are many antichrists that are in the world. Anybody who denies Jesus coming in the flesh. He says there's many already. Folks, if there were many in John's day, how many more do you think are in our day? And so when he commends them for walking in the truth, what I'm, what I'm trying to get you to understand here is they didn't live in a bubble. They didn't live in a sterile environment. Sometimes we think the early church had it easier than us. No, they, they had a lot of uphill battles. But again, they're holding strong. They're holding strong. Now, so serious was this problem in the first century world, uh, and then into the second century as well, John says, and look at verses 10 and 11, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, what's he talking about there? Welcome. I want you to remember at this point, this period of time, as believers traveled around the world, they would stay with other believers. In the first century world, hotels were, first of all, there weren't many of them. And, and they weren't nice places. They were basically brothels. And so the early Christian leaders, when they would travel around the world going into new communities, spreading the gospel, they didn't want to stay in places like that. They would, the, the believers would open their homes to believers who were coming in town to help them with their church work. And so the New Testament emphasizes a lot that believers need to show hospitality. Well, the false teachers would take advantage of this. They would use the hospitality of genuine believers to worm their way into homes and churches and spread their doctrine. Now, does that mean that for us today, if we're witnessing to a non-believer, that, that we need to refuse to invite the non-believer over for cake and coffee? Is that what the scripture's saying? No, it's not saying that at all. How about if a cult member, a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon comes to your door? Do, do we refuse to invite them in to, to talk? Yeah, again, it doesn't mean that at all. But what it does mean is if we know somebody's a false teacher and they want to come to our home, not for the purpose of honest conversation in searching the scripture, but instead their purpose is to lay out their information in our home or church or something like a Sunday school gathering, we're not to give them the opportunity, we're not to give them the platform to share their false doctrine. I've told you before too, I had to learn that in my first church at a, at a seminary. The Jehovah Witnesses were very active in our community and 
We lived in a parsonage next door to the church. And a wise, old, retired Methodist pastor, a godly man. I mean, he, he and his wife, his wife was from England. Uh, but he was a godly Methodist minister, retired. And uh, they lived next door to us. And he said, Scott, let me give you a piece of advice. The JWs who keep coming around our homes, he said, Ann and I learned a long time ago in this community, don't invite them in. Because now you'll invite them in to try to share the gospel with them. But what they will do, and this is a community where everybody went to church somewhere and everybody knew everybody. They will leave your house knowing you're the preacher and that's the parsonage and they'll go through the community and knock on a door and, and they'll say, what's your name, Maxine? Oh, Maxine, you go to such and such family? You know what? We just came from the home of your pastor. He let us in and, and we had a great conversation. Can we come into you? And he said they will use that, the fact that you invited them in to try to get into other homes. I've never thought about that before. John's advice here is the same. Don't give them the opportunity. Don't give them a platform to share false doctrine. It's one thing if somebody is wanting to learn the truth. It's an entirely different thing if all they're after is to worm their way in to try to pull other people away from the gospel. Again, what's Paul, I mean, what's John saying here? Truth matters. It matters what you believe. Do you believe the biblical testimony of who God says his son Jesus is? Do you believe the <clears throat> biblical testimony about the person and work of Christ? Do you believe the scripture, what it says about other issues related to life? It matters. Truth is not in a state of flux where it's constantly changing. Oh, that was true for your generation. It's not true for me. Truth's not in a state of flux like that. Now, a second thing John reminds his listeners of, a believer's relationship to other believers. Look at what he says in verse 5. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. Over and over again in the Bible, it's pointed out that believers don't live as an island unto ourselves. You know, in the early church, in the book of Acts, we see the, the disciples and the believers meeting together even daily. And continuing in the apostles' teaching and breaking the breaking bread and prayer. And they're ministering to one another's physical needs in, the, in their poverty. In, in the book of Hebrews, we're commanded not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. And so it's very clear in the New Testament that the Christian faith has a corporate dimension to it. We're not called upon to be lone rangers who are islands unto ourselves. If somebody <laughs> removes themselves constantly from other believers, uh, 
The Bible, the New Testament is very clear. They're living in disobedience to God. We are a community of believers. Yes, we walk individually in the faith, but we also walk corporately and we're to meet together and pray for one another and build one another up and exercise the spiritual gifts of the church as, as we're a believing force in the community. Now, as, as you think about the corporate nature of the church, the very first thing that has to come to mind, or needs to come to mind anyway, is that we need to love one another. We need to love one another. Now, John sounds here just like maybe he's recorded Jesus' words and playing back the recording, right? Because what did Jesus say in John 13, 33? The world will know you're my disciples if you want, if you love one another. So John says here, and also back in 1 John, he says, it's not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but one we've had from the beginning. In John 13, 33, Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment. In 1 John, John says, it's a new commandment, but it's also an old commandment. What's John talking about? I'm writing to you a new commandment, that you love one another. But it's really not a new commandment, it's an old commandment. But it's a new commandment. I mean, John, what are you... It sounds like double talk. What's, what's he talking about here? Well... <clears throat> We can go all the way back to the book of Leviticus and see that God's commanded us to love one another from the beginning of the Bible. So in that sense, it's an old commandment. But then Jesus added a new dimension to it, didn't he? He pointed out that we're to love even our enemies. And that love for one another would be evidence of his work in our lives. Folks, if love were always easy, anybody could do it. Sometimes love's got to be expressed <coughs> towards people when, when we would just as soon express something else. Right? Amen. Amen. And this is where we can be so far off on our thoughts on love. We know that we don't deserve God's love, but we want God's love anyway, right? Of course we do, regardless of what we've done, regardless of how we might be acting. We want God's love. Man, I want God to love me regardless of how hard-headed or obstinate I might be. But then we want to turn around and the love we give to other people we want them to deserve it. Right? But that's not the way Christian love works. Our love is to be more like Christ's love. So even when somebody you know doesn't deserve it, when you don't want to show them love, Jesus said, if you want to know what Christian love is, you love that person anyway. And that's the new dimension he added to it, right? And so again, it's an old commandment, but it's a new commandment that Jesus added more meaning to it. 
You know, in Matthew 22, Jesus gave the two greatest commandments, right? He said everything can be summed up, two commandments. All the vertical commands about how I relate to God. Jesus says, first great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. Because if I'm loving God that way, if I'm really loving God that way, all the other commands in the scripture that have to do with my relationship to God, they're going to fall in the right place if I'm taking care of that. right. And then he says, the second greatest commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Leviticus there. Again, if I'm loving my neighbor as myself, all the commands in the Bible that have to do with horizontal relationships, if I'm really loving my neighbor as myself, I'm doing all those things. So Jesus said on these two commandments hangs all the law and the prophets. And then in 1 John, 1 John chapter 3 specifically, we see that love is defined by doing tangible deeds to help people. It's not just saying, I love you, but it's showing them that you love them by what you do, how you relate to them. And again, Jesus said we would be known by our love. Not by dress code, not by a necklace, a cross necklace around your neck, not by a haircut, but by our love. But I want you to notice before John leaves this subject, look at verse 6 again. And this is love that we walk in obedience to his command. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. And so what, what's John doing there? He's tying walking in the truth and walking in love together. Right? He's, he's marrying the two together. And so again, true love is not something that can be divorced from doctrine and obedience. Well, do you love the brethren? Do you love the brethren? John says in 1 John, that's actually a sign of genuine conversion. You know, in 2021, I think of all that's going on in the world today. What do we see related to both of these things John's talking about? We live in a world where people are supposed to believe everything and anything. Right? And then we live in a world, uh, you've obviously noticed it, I've never seen so much hate and division. So when you say 2 John really has a special meaning for society today, doesn't it? And folks, there's strength and influence in, in love and truth. J. Allen Peterson in his book, The Myth of the Greener Grass, writes, Newspaper columnist and minister George Crane tells of a wife who came to his office full of pure hate for her husband. She said, I don't want to just get rid of him. I want to get even. 
She went on to say, before I leave him and divorce him, I want to hurt him as much as I possibly can. Now, Dr. Crane suggested an ingenious plan. He said, go home and act like you really love him. Tell him you love him, praise him, encourage him, be kind to him. Go out of your way to be just as kind and loving as you possibly can. Do kind things for him. Somebody's phone. Anyway, she, he said, uh, make him believe that you love him like nobody's ever loved him before. And then he said, just when you think you've got him eaten out of your hand, drop the bombshell on him that you hate him and you're leaving him. And you spent all this time loving him and he's come to believe it. If you want to hurt him, that's going to be the way you'll hurt him the most. The wife said, that's brilliant. That's a brilliant plan. <clears throat> And she went home and she did all of the above. Well, she didn't come for her next appointment. So he called her. Well, what do you think happened? The woman said, divorce? Never. Our, our marriage has never been so great. I followed your plan and pretty soon, you know what? My husband started treating me just as good as I was treating him. We have never been in such love. <laughs> Dr. Crane, please don't call me again. Your, your plan failed. <laughs> and I'm glad it did. Goodbye. <laughs> and Dr. Crane hung up and had a smile on his face. <laughs> the power of love. John says love one another. <clears throat> walking in truth, walking in love. Then the third thing, a believer's relationship to himself. Look at verse 8. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. John's got a word to his readers about themselves. In light of the culture they live in and light, in light of the attacks they're receiving against themselves over their faith, he says, open your eyes and look. Watch out for yourself. Guard yourself. Don't live a careless and unexamined life. You know, Paul said the same thing in 2 Corinthians 13, didn't he? You remember what he told them? Because the Corinthians were, I mean, they were a mess. The Corinthian church, it blows me away still today, drive through little towns and see Corinth Baptist Church. I think, have they never read the Corinthian correspondence? Why would you name yourself Corinth Baptist Church or Corinth anything church? They were a mess. So Paul gets to the end of 1st and 2nd Corinthians and he says you need to examine yourselves to make sure you're really in the faith. Because boy, they didn't live like it. Jesus said he who endures to the end will be saved by somebody watching themselves, by being on guard. 
they, they, they may realize that, that real faith, hopefully they'll realize, real faith endures to the end. True faith perseveres to the end. And people in trials, people in opposition, people in hardship need to realize that. True faith perseveres. And so John is saying you've got to give attention to your own life, to yourself, to your doctrine, your love, your faith. Don't dare just drift through life without ever taking account of your Christian growth. John, John sees, can, can you imagine if somebody in John's audience had entertained a false teacher and their faith had been shaken or somebody they knew had been shaken. John sees in a case like that that everything he's worked for could be lost. I mean, it, it, it would be like Christian parents sending their child off to the university and their child's come up through the children's program at church, the youth program. They go off to the university. They come back home at Christmas and say... <laughs> Mom and Dad, you know, at, at college I took a religion class and the guy who teaches it, I, I just don't believe any of that stuff anymore. Too many parents have had that experience with their kids. All of this that's been poured into their kids, they come back from university or somewhere and say, I don't, I don't believe that anymore. John's just said there's many deceivers in the world. What do deceivers do? They deceive. And so again, that's why John says, watch out for yourself. Guard yourself. Carefully guard yourself. And your faith and your doctrine and your love for others. Give attention to all of these things. Again, just... Don't drift. Don't pretend like truth and doctrine don't matter. Don't pretend like loving the brethren doesn't matter. Watch yourself. I think of Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4, with grief in his voice, he says, Timothy, everybody's left me now. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world more. How sad. It's like John also saying, don't, don't be like a Demas who turns back to the world. Guard your life, your faith, your doctrine. I want you to think about all these areas that John's reminding us to be mindful of. Our relationship to the truth, our relationship to one another, and our relationship to ourself. And we've still got most of this year before us. How are you going to grow in your understanding of biblical doctrine and of the scripture? I hope maybe this will be a year. If you don't regularly study your Bible or read through your Bible, I hope this might be a year that you'll finally do that. Get in a small group, a community group, or a small group of some sort with other believers. 
and grow together, love one another, minister together, and study the scripture together, and strengthen one another. Maybe there's also already some areas in your life, even tonight, even tonight, as you think about your life, there might, there might be some troublesome or secretive areas of your life that you know you need, you need to start guarding. You need to guard those areas. You need to turn away from some things, maybe, and guard your life. So you'll finish well. Now, again, folks, short, short letter, but I can't think of any message more needed, more applicable for today than that right there. Amen? Any comments before we wrap up in our prayer time? Scripture says we're to be renewed in our mind. We do that through Scripture. Heart and mind. It's sure. like um, in the Old Testament, they had rules. Mm -hmm. And circumcision right. was physical. Right. In the New Testament, it's circumcision of the heart. Our heart. Mm -hmm. And that's where I, I thought about that way you were talking about loving one another. Mm -hmm. Because that love is now written in our hearts. Yeah. The love that Jesus gave us. Certainly. So it should be. I can give a personal testimony, but I have to tell Joe a secret. <laughs> We've been married, I don't know, maybe close to 10 years, and we had his and her children. So between that and him having been military and had things, you do it this way, you do it, you know, he had certain laws. I was really aggravated with him. <laughs> and the Lord told me, sit down and write the good things about him. And I sat down and wrote the good things about him. And I forgot about all those bad forgot about all the others. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> Don't say him. <laughs> <laughs> he probably had the same list. <laughs> oh, he said, any praise is appreciated. <laughs> I think that's our problem. We don't think about the positive things about people, mm -hmm. even in the church. Yep. If they say one thing or do one thing that aggravates you, I'm not going to have anything more to do with them. Yep. And that's yep. not the way we need no. to be. Why did God write a list about us? Why did God write a list about us? Good things and the bad things. He didn't tell me to write the bad. He just told me to write the good. Well, before we have prayer, close in prayer, introduce yourselves. Uh, I'm Benjamin Tulowitzki. I'm uh, Mary Lemon with my grandmother. Benjamin Tulowitzki. 
Okay. Mary Lemon died. Uh, yeah, Luella. Luella. I'm a grandson. I gave her a eulogy. Okay. And God's been speaking to me lately. And Very good. I found her Bible, which was the only thing in the room I moved, when I moved into it. It just happened to be her Bible sitting there. When I read through it, she leaves little messages. Good deal. I've been reading. So That's great. Wow. Me and my girlfriend came up and Bible study. And your girlfriend is? Yes, is uh, Ashley. Ashley? Ashley Wood. Benjamin and Ashley. Make them feel welcome tonight. Thank you. Good to see our college students with us tonight. Tell you some of them. Well, home for right well, now. I'm, I came home for uh, so I'm up in Raleigh right now, but I came home for like three days. I think I'm going back tomorrow. So. Okay. Okay. Good deal. <coughs> okay. Somebody lead us in prayer, and I'll close us. Lead us in prayer, and let's remember all these needs. Who lead us? Somebody volunteer. Somebody volunteer to leave, get us started. That's always the hardest, isn't it? Person getting us started. Ned, lead us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the <coughs> blessings that you brought upon us. We thank you for this message, Lord, for the love and truth for your son, most of all. Or for each of these that are listed on the board tonight, for all those that are not, you know the needs, you know your plan. You know what you'd have us to do and where you'd have us to be still and be silent. Guys, and all these things, Lord. Watch over those that are hurting because of the loss of family members. Watch over those that need your healing touch and need the guidance given to the doctors that are going to be performing surgeries. Lord, Give us the response to those that would hurt us that you'd have us to, to give to them. Help us to remember that it's not what is done to us, but it's how we react that shows the fruit of our love. Guys, in all these things, we ask in Jesus' name. Any others? Our Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that dwells <coughs> in us when we know you and Lord, help us always to realize what a great power that is because that's a power you left with us when you went back to be with your Father. So help us, Lord, to listen to the Holy Spirit when he speaks to us, dear God. And we know that he will speak to us in loving one another and help us to always, always love one another. In Jesus' name.
and they have a very good success rate. And why is that? Because they basically use God's word through, through their counseling, Christian counseling, and that's the only way to to really uh, have an effect on, on people uh, in a positive way. Lord, uh, I thank you for this church that uh, uh, doesn't uh, hide itself from love of other Christians beyond this church. And that's a real blessing. Uh, some churches just want to be a little in a little pocket and, and, that, and stay there. And, and I wonder what Jesus would say if he looked down on, a, on us today as all so many different uh, uh, churches of like faith that are separated uh, with uh, not always love. <laughs> and uh, Lord, I, uh, I do pray for the uh, people that are hurting uh, tonight, Lord, that, uh, that are on our list. Help us to pray for them during the week, and uh, um, we pray for Miss or Artuso, that just who lost a loved one, and others. There's so many that lost loved ones, and uh, yet we are comforted by your word, by your truth. Help us to uh, give us a, a spirit of discernment where we can see where. Um, uh, <laughs> where we need to draw the line. And uh, uh, we, we just thank you that we can, uh, we can be assured of your word because of so many truths you have that have come true in our own lives through your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Lord, I can't think of a much more applicable book than for our day and age today, than Second John. Yet oftentimes, it's a little book that we pass over and ignore. But we live in a day and age where people think truth is whatever you want it to be. You have your truth, I have my truth, and we even embrace contradictory truths. Or some that would say there is no truth. We see what a mess the world is in because we have turned away from, from your truth, from your word. And also we see so much hostility in the world and people attacking people and just so much hatred and division. And so a message about truth and love certainly a powerful message for, for the church today. And Lord, may we be reminded tonight that we're to practice these things and be the salt and light of the world. Jesus looked at His disciples and said, you and you alone are the salt of the earth, and you and you alone are the light of the world. He told us that the salt can't lose its saltiness, and the light shouldn't try to conceal its light. So Lord, help us as the church to be salt and light when it comes to truth and love. 
And Lord, that we would guard our walk, guard our doctrine closely in our lives, that it will be a good testimony for you. Lord, strengthen the church in these days. As we're beginning to come out of COVID a little bit with restrictions, some being lightened, Lord, I pray that our folks would begin to regather, that we would, uh, that we would march forward as the body of Christ, and that we'd be soldiers of the cross, and that we would be at work in the world today, because who knows, time, for all we know, may be very, very short. And as the Scripture says, it's high time that we arouse from our slumber and realize that our salvation is nearer today than it's ever been before. May we live daily with that thought and realization in mind. In Christ's name we pray.